All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. On this episode of After the Battle Campfire, I talk with my buddy, Gary Andre. He's a retired Navy CBG Petty Officer who I met in 2008. Today we talk about what he did in the Navy and why he decided to join at 32. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. All right, I'm back and I'm here with my buddy who I've known for 13 years. Can you believe that? Uh, Gary Andre. Say hi, wow, Gary. it's been that long. Hi. Yep. Yep. Um, it's super creepy. So I met Gary when I was on med hold at Brook Army Medical Center uh, in, what was it, 2007, 2008? No, probably eight because I had my heart attack in November 07. So we have amazingly stayed pretty damn close this entire time. Regrettably so, yeah. (laughs) Which is crazy. So I want to, like I do with everyone, let's start with your origin story. You're a native Texan, right? Yes, I am. So where did you grow up? I, uh, well, my dad kind of moved around some, mostly in South Texas because of his job, but, um, uh, South Texas. I mean, I graduated the, my last, my first, uh, two years in high school was down in Raymondville, down the Valley. And then he transferred up to Rockport, Fulton area on the coast. And so I, um, graduated from high school there at Rockport Fulton. And then I lived there about 15 years and moved away. So did you have growing up any desire or inspiration to join the military? Yes, I did. Because my dad was, um, in the fall of 41, my dad had a full athletic scholarship to Texas A&M playing football. And so after Pearl Harbor, then in um, spring of 42, he joined the Army Air Corps. Uh, his brother was in the Army Air Corps. His brother-in-law um, that later on married his, his sister was in the, um, the Navy Air Corps, what he called it. And then the other brother-in-law was in the uh, Coast Guard. So I had that you know, with my dad and talking stuff. So I, I wanted to, but, um, got married out of high school. So I never did anything. And then when I was 32, I joined the reserves. So did you and your dad talk a lot? Um, did he, was he one of those world war two guys who didn't really talk about his time in service or did you guys know, you know a lot about it? Well, his, he told me about his time of service, but, um, they kept screwing up on his, um, his uh, records and would get lost. So he was never shipped OCC. So he's always in the uh, U.S. Now, um, you know, he talked to me about some of the stuff, but, you know, again, it wasn't combat related or stuff like that. Right. So you, um, I didn't realize you didn't join until you were 32. Yeah. So the APG program back then. So you were a Navy CB uh, builder, chief builder, which, 
I know we had Roy on a couple episodes ago and he kind of talked about the CBs, but so what did you know about the CBs or did you know anything about them? I didn't really know anything about them until I went to the recruiter because I checked a couple of uh, other branches and I went to the Navy, the recruiter, just to see what it was. And then when they um, uh, asked me, you know, what um, background I had in construction, and he says, well, that's when I found out about the CBs. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's what, so what I, that's why I got in. Was construction part of your life? Um, it was, life? I, you know, I did, um, I had a, my father-in-law was a carpenter. So he taught me a lot of my carpenter skills, my ex-father-in-law. And then I'd done some, um, welding, pipe fitting, structural fitting, you know, I'd done some other type of, you know, structure, some, uh, uh, Car, uh, construction experience. So I had that background. So was this pre or post nine 11 when you. 93. Oh, 93. It was after desert storm. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. I'm trying to. Jeez. So you, uh, go talk to the, re- what drove you to go talk to the recruiter in the first place? This always, you know, um, Basically, my dad, you know, this always, I always liked watching war movies. You know, I liked history. Uh, I liked a lot of that stuff. And that just, you know, the patriotism and that's just, it caused me. So I went to Naval. I lived in Rockport. So I drove over to uh, talk to, um, went over to Naval Air Station Corpus where the NOS was there and talked to a recruiter. So did you know? And I found out out about the APG program. The APG program was advanced pay grade. So I already had the skill, the carpentry skill. So I went in as a a third class, an E4. Yeah, an E4. So with you, though, was it always going to be the Navy or was it, did you ever think about any of the other branches? Uh, It wasn't. The only reason why I picked the Navy is because uh, of because I didn't actually have to go to boot camp, you know, because I was married and I already had three kids, you know, being away. So this was an easier uh, option to go. And then my basically my first two, uh, AT was a uh, two week mini mini boot camp, a little school. So oh, okay. it just it works a lot better for my being already established, you know, family man and having a family. So you knew off the bat the reserves was the the way you were going to go. I, I was because, um, you know, I'd already had, I had a good job, a good paying job. I, you know, I had a house, didn't want to, you know, move around. I knew I couldn't move my wife around. So it had to be the reserves. Okay. So talk to me about this mini boot camp. So, well, I guess the first question is you sign the paperwork, you go to MEPS, and typically, um, even with well, I didn't go to first, MEPS. I didn't oh, go to MEPS. MEPS. I just, no, I just went to a, um, they had a uh, a doctor tour. Um, I went and um, did like a physical, and that was it. And then I went to before a uh, a marine. I think it was a marine captain, and he swore me in. And then I started drilling uh, December the 29th is so, uh, of ninety three. So how did the so then? Oh, I was going to say, how, how did the uniforms and all of that work out? Well, they, um, they shipped me. Well, in the meantime, I found a couple, of, I think I went to the, uh, um, army surplus stores and bought a, a uniform 
just one uniform and I got uh, one of the guys had extra cover, so I think I bought it from him. Just got kind of got the stuff ready because at the time they had the old navy greens. Yeah, yeah. The Vietnam era. They were just phasing them out, and they were going with the the BDUs. At that point in time, when you joined in '93, I was with uh, NMCB 22, or not 22. I'm sorry, you were with 22. I was with NMCB 16. God, I'm getting my shit all screwed up. And yeah, I remember after boot camp coming back and showing up and getting the Gomer pile greens. Yeah. With, with that, uh, eight point cover that you had to starch the shit out of. Uh, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. I start, I had, I, for the longest I had my old, uh, uh, two piece where I would start it. It always looked nice and crisp. Yeah. The, um, yeah, that was a different world to think of, uh, those those greens uh the army was already in you know bdus marines were in their bdus we had a marine corps unit right next to store to us and it was like i want i want that uniform not these greens tucked in your I, if i remember right you tucked in your shirt your blouse top yes it was tucked in yeah completely just so reminded me of the vietnam movies of the time yep so you um you get your greens. So what's it like showing up as a third class petty officer? Which, contrary to popular belief, certain HM two I know, in the Navy, a third class petty officer is a non commissioned officer. What's that like showing up and having no boot camp, nothing behind you? Just hi, I'm Gary. Um, this is it was my the- uniform. There was not a lot of information passed forward. I mean, um, yeah, even I, I did that for, I think my first drill was in January and then uh, my AT was in August. So I went to uh, Algiers and uh, uh, across the uh, river from New Orleans, uh, Algiers uh, Naval Air Station. So that's where I did my mini boot camp. But yeah, it's just, they didn't tell you much, but after a couple of years, I mean, I was as a third class. We had some projects there at the um, at the Nosk and uh, like three or four of them. I I ran those as a third class and got a Nam as a third class for those projects. So I mean, back then, Nosk is Naval Operational Support Center, which is the, basically the current name for uh, where reservists go to drill. Back then, I think it was. I don't know if you had a Marine Corps unit at your NOSC, but it, yes, the, one I, the one I know of was NMRC, Navy Marine Corps Reserve Center, or something like that. Um, I, I don't remember that far back. <laughs> so, what about CB training? Did they send you to any of like the CB schools? Um, no, really didn't. This, this, the only, um, no, they didn't. Uh, just going to different ATs and just, you know, from there. Later on, once I got to second class, I, uh, SMI school, CB military instructor, I took that. That was a three-week class to learn how to be an instructor to teach the CB combat warfare um, handbook. Uh, but, yeah, no, I didn't do many schools. None. So back then, I know our – uh, NMCB 16 had a Marine assigned to it as like a military advisor or something to that effect. Right. Yes. They did have. You, yes. Did you guys have that back then? Yeah, we still had it. We had, uh, yeah, he's, uh, uh, generally it was a gunny. 
that was a Marine advisor to the, uh, the skipper. So what, um, as a reservist on your drill weekends, what were you guys doing? Especially uh, back then. Cause it was after desert storm. Nothing. Um, nothing. I mean, just sit around just, um, you know, they might do some paperwork, which I didn't know what they're doing because, you know, like evals and stuff like that. I didn't know a lot of that stuff. So it was just, you had some uh, correspondent books you might be doing, you know, you could do those correspondent books to, you know, go to the library, check, actually get a book, uh, a hard copy and, you know, um, do the correspondence, turn that stuff in. So actually coming to APG, I had, uh, I don't know how many books that I had to do within uh, three years time frame to make my rate permit. And so I knocked those out pretty quick. So sometimes just sitting there just BSing or doing some correspondent books because you would get some extra points. So that was about it. Every once in a while we'd have a little project. So when I was with 16, they were, not drilling out of the reserve center. They were actually on board Naval Air, uh, the old Naval Air Station, um, Los Alamitos in Southern California, right by, I think it's like literally a stone's throw away from Naval, uh, God damn it, what's the name of it? Naval Weapon Station, Seal Beach, and where the old Long Beach Naval Hospital used to be. And then, was probably two miles away and then maybe five miles away was the old naval uh station long beach they had um the headquarters unit there and it was in its own building literally you would have never known it was a reserve unit it, it they had active duty staff there the whole nine yards i think it's probably a lot like how if you go up to port wainimi the reserve headquarters were yeah so we were they call it doing they call stuff. that the yeah they call that the rss because our our RSS was up at um, NAS uh, Fort Worth, and that's where they had they had their own little compound. Yeah, it was not in the reserve center; it was off to the side, and so they had the active duty staff was there. And then whenever it was a drill weekend, the uh, you know the you know skipper and then, uh, everybody else that was the debt in that location. That's where they they had classrooms off to the side. They do the classroom and stuff. <laughs> we didn't have that. For a while, we had a uh, an old warehouse that wouldn't be in use. We were uh, we would do our you know drilling and uh, classrooms and stuff there away from the loss. But then uh, they I took away there. I think they were going to demo it, so we had to go back into uh, the classroom at the reserve center. So did I get? Well, I'll ask you this question later when we get more along with your story because I think it's better to reflect from there. But so as a young third class going and doing this, what was your first uh, AT that was not the mini boot camp like for you? The first year, or did you guys do a FX that year on top of your we, mini We did FXs and, and uh, that was an eye opening. The very first field exercise, I had no under, no idea. I mean, yeah, we had uh, no idea what was going on. <laughs> I didn't. So was it difficult for you as a 32-year-old construction professional uh, coming into the reserves and being, I mean, yeah, you were a third class, but you were a boot third class with no time in service and no time in grade. Was that a little bit of a humbling experience to you? Not that part because just, uh, you know, because I had the uh, leadership of, you know, abilities and, and they, they saw that right off the bat because, you know, like I said, that um, at the NAS, they were, I was, you know, ordering stuff, doing uh, projects, doing some renovation there. So 
I, I didn't really have a, you know, bad learning curve. It was more of the, um, the military, the, the effects aspect of it, you know, going out patrols and, you know, all that yeah, kind that, of stuff. That's kind of what I was getting at was as a, as a, I came in the Navy as a third class. I had a couple, um, in my second enlistment when I came back in 2004, a couple, uh, nurses who came and became corpsmen through the APG program and getting them to understand the military side of it was really difficult in terms of, unfortunately, I'll just say it flat out in terms of fraternization with the Marines, in terms of understanding, you know, corpsmen do it different and you didn't have any, they never went to core school. So they didn't have any of that background of, of what corpsmen do. They were just working at it from the nursing angle, not from the, the corpsman angle. Right. And that's why I was asking about, did you get any of the actual CBs are like corpsmen where the, the pride is so deep in, in being a CB, which I know from knowing you, you are a walking CB poster half the time, which is really amazing <laughs> to know that you didn't go to any, any of the CB uh, A schools or to boot camp. I would have never known. I would have never guessed that. No, again, it's just, uh, you know, having the other, you know, prior knowledge is, you know, well, being raised by a, uh, you know, the greatest generation, you know, he was born in 22 depression era. So, you know, being in the military, I had that kind of growing up. So being in the military, as far as discipline, you know, structure, uh, that was not a, a culture shock for me, whatever, whatsoever. So did you, as you were going through the nineties, I mean, Everyone knows the 90s was probably one of the hardest decades for the military. Everything after Desert Storm, which was great because it was probably the fastest war we've ever fought, but also set some pretty high bars for the future about why it took us so long to do what we did in Iraq. But that being said, how were the 90s in general for you as you were drilling? It was just, I mean, there was... It was kind of boring. It really was boring drilling the whole time in the 90s. Once um, uh, more towards the 2000s, it got a little bit more interesting, you know, uh, actually doing a little bit more at that time. But in the 90s, man, it was a weekend, weekend out, you know, just sitting there, just bored, shitless. So you guys weren't even naive me, and I was with the CBs, but you guys weren't hammering on anything or building anything we didn't we didn't have anything every once in a while we had um i know what i remember from there we only had like three or four projects we actually did like during the weekends or something one was uh um we formed up and put a concrete pad where they had their damage control that was outside we did that uh we changed the inside the um the heads with the dividers on the stalls we changed those out and then we did uh, Escondido Ranch. It's, uh, it's near. It's a bombing range somewhere in South Texas. We went out there and did a little, uh, few little projects out there. And then in the meantime, while we're doing the projects, we did little, you know, patrols and training there. But yeah, we had very few, uh, other than ATs. So did you guys get um, outside of AT? Did they ever get you guys on the range or any range time? Um. I only remember maybe once or twice in the uh, late 
nineties uh, to in early two thousands. We did. We we came up. We actually drove up to probably late nineties. We actually um, uh, came up to uh, Camp Bullis and uh, we were involved with the shoot with the the San Antonio debt. Okay, so uh, what I know you live generally in San Antonio, Halotus, um, whatever area that you built your house in. At what point in time did you actually move permanently up here to San Antonio? I was at, I, I actually, around the early 2000s, I moved to San Antonio, but I was still drilling down in, in NAS Corpus because my family was there. So I drilled and then afterwards I go see my family. But um, so early 2000s, I moved here, but I actually transferred to San Antonio debt. And um, right after I returned from my deployment in 06. Uh, oh, okay. Then I transferred to the uh, non-San Antonio. It just there was more opportunities for me to grow and for leadership and projects and stuff like that. There was more opportunities here, so that's why I uh, I transferred to San Antonio. Okay, so um, going back to your your family because you brought up the point that you know your dad obviously a World War II vet, all of that. How did they react when you at again an older age decided to join the Navy? Then. They didn't really say a lot. Now, <laughs> I got some um, some feedback from my ex-wife, uh, wife at the time. I did from her, but um, it was it was kind of difficult, and it caused some problems with the marriage, and and eventually some of that led to the divorce. But uh, it was something that was ingrained to me, and I just I, I I couldn't ignore it anymore. So I just I had to do it. So you thought? So you knew that. This was something, this was a calling. This wasn't just, I want, I want to get the reserve GI bill or that this was really a calling for you then. Yeah, it was more of a calling. It had nothing to do with the money or anything like that or, or the GI bill. I didn't even know about any of that stuff. So it was more, it wasn't more anything about education. It was more the calling to, you know, serve my country. So Sadly, you are serving in the driest period, except for uh, one intervention that happens between 93 and 2001, which was Kosovo. Um, did you guys have any opportunity to support that mission at all? There were some CBs that actually, they did go there. Um, I was not, you know, I wouldn't call up for that. Um, but then, when was it? No, I wasn't uh, then, but then I was uh, supposed to, but right when the um, Iraqi freedom started, uh, I was supposed to get big called up. They had an air debt I was supposed to go, but ended up, instead of a heavy air debt, it was a, a light air debt, so I didn't go. So um, the fact that you didn't go to boot camp takes out one of my fun questions I ask everyone, but I know you've been gassed before. How oh, was yeah. it being gassed the first time? It was it was a little nerving. Yeah, we actually our our two weeks we did do the. Um, you oh, know, you did. Yeah, we did do it. We go to the confidence chamber. They had some type of a fragrance, you know. Well, actually, they didn't use uh, gas then, but they had some type of fragrance. But no, when I actually, you know, with the the CBs, you know, different things we had on ATs. We um, yeah, we had a you go to the gas chamber. You know, you take out, you know, <laughs> Don and clear your gas mask, and you you take a breath, you. Take off your canister, put it around your back, put it and then screw it back in. Haven't they didn't seen make that it, technique. They didn't make us do that, but the only real tear gas I that experience I had is when we were on AT at uh, Hunter Liggett. 
um, we were actually, they were filming the movie. We were soldiers, the Mel Gibson's movie. Oh, okay. How more they were actually yeah. filming the movie out there. And we, on um, uh, we were out there father's day on a Sunday morning. We heard something was going on at three o'clock in the morning. Oh, 300. So we got up and sure enough, they, they tear gas the whole, but, uh, encampment, you know, it's encampment's the reserve in the active duty. And so about five o'clock, they called all clear. We took the gas mask. We had to form up. So even walking through the gas, through the grass, you know, you know, just start running. Your eyes would burn. What year was that? I'm trying to think when that movie came out. That was in the early 2001, two or three, something like that. In that time frame. Okay. I thought that movie was older than that. I thought that was like in the late nineties or mid nineties. I was thinking it was the early, early early 2000s because um uh we actually i actually met the um the admiral over the cbs his uh uh i can't even think of his name right now but uh his son was a uh, uh an ensign out there with the active duty battalion so we got to be his because we had gone out on patrol and we actually took out the aggressors so then we actually had to be his uh escort through you know walking around and then actually I met his, I saw his son while I was in Ag- Agdad and Al-Assad. And I told him and introduced myself as, at the time, he was a um, lieutenant with the CBs and oh, introduced nice. myself and, and talked to him about the, uh, the, uh, the story. But I, evidently he was the admiral that had, was out there in the call formation. I think it was NMCB 14 and out of, I think it's Florida area. And they had a, a IDF and mortars and, and killed some uh, CBs. They were supposedly in formation outdoors. Oh, was that's this just in a, a story? Was this was in, in Iraq? Iraq or, okay. Yeah. There, there's been a couple of those that uh, I've heard about. So, um, at some point in time, the boring drill weekends of the '90s and and I'm assuming, yeah, you probably would have been at work, but that day that we always talk about happened, uh, September 11th. Do you remember what you were doing when it happened? Yes. At the time I worked for Clark American, they made checkbooks. I was a technician that worked on the, the printers and packaging equipment, but we had a lunchroom and it had a TV in there. And I remember watching that. And so like, Oh, you know, you know, that happened. And then I remember, I went to, in 2005, I think it was like May or June, uh, a friend got married and I was there and my LPO called me, says, we're getting called up. And so. So did you, well, with 9-11, did you, um, did you think it was going to turn out to be what it was that we were going to kick off the war or? I kind of thought about that and that's, you know, uh, I kind of felt that way. Something was going to happen. You know, we're going to war some sort didn't know what, to what extent, but knew something was going to go on. So did they do anything with you guys uh, for nine 11? Have you guys check in with the NOSC or do any of that? We, we always had the, um, the, they do phone call musters at times, you know, every quarter or something like that. That was about it. But again, once it actually kicked off, you know, they went in there and then that's, I did get a phone call that I was supposed to be, you know, mobilized, but they ended up again, like I said, they didn't, they just did a, uh, uh, 
small uh, air debt, and they were on orders for like two or three months and one evening, and then they came back home. So did um, did the actual uh, drill weekends become a little bit more intense then following 9-11? Yeah, it did. There's just a little bit more, a lot more training. So you know, what just, about... Yeah, some of the training. And at that time, I think um, I already had that, uh, that certification, the, the SMI, CB military instructor. So I was actually given some, you know, classes on patrols and different other things like that. At this point in time, what were you, what rank were you at on September 11th or around September 11th? Uh, I think I was a start, still a third class. I just, I was content. I just, I didn't really push myself. And then I started um, seeing some stuff. So then I have to go back and look at my stuff. Because um, that would have been what, like, nine, eight, nine years in? I was, yeah, it was all like, I think I just picked up, I think I was still third class. I think like in 2004, I picked up the second class. Oh, okay. okay. That, you were, the you were like me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I stayed in H in my entire first enlistment. Don't ask. Uh, didn't have good leadership and didn't even know about the Navy exams. Well, I didn't, that means that's the same thing. I didn't know a lot of that stuff, you know, didn't, um, and the chiefs at the time or the LPS. Well, that too. I didn't know last too. And, and, yeah. you know, the, the, the leadership was not very informative. Right. I completely feel you on that. So, um, nine 11 happens, drills get a little bit more intense. So are your, are your FXs then, Focusing more on the possibility of deployment, or are you guys still just doing the same type of FXs that you would normally do? Well, they have and back FX then, is field exercise for people who are getting confused by our acronyms. Um, back then the CBs had a four-year cycle. They did. Uh, you went to um, first year. You did like you went to school. Uh, second year, I can't remember. Uh, you did a project and the fourth year you did the effects. So it was a four year cycle. So you did effects every four years. Oh, okay. Okay. So it was, it's just effects every four years. So, uh, yeah, you didn't, they didn't do that. So it was just you, every two, every, every fourth year you had the effects and you just had two weeks training. Okay. So at this point in time, you have kids, right? Yes. Uh, yes. I have kids. I have three kids. So how are they dealing with uh, 9-11 and the possibility of dad now in his 40s or close to it? It, may, it yeah. looks like he may push out. Yeah, then they were concerned about it. You know, again, they were um, hell in 2000. They were in their, you know, in their teens. Yeah, mid, mid to late, mid to late teens at that time. So did you guys, did you, and I'm, I'm just asking out of curiosity, did you have to, to talk to him about the potential of you getting called? I, I think I might've mentioned something to him that, you know, I might be called up, but it was just, didn't talk a lot about it. So then how was, how was the wife at the time taking all this? 
at the time I was divorced. I was not married. So, oh, okay. yeah, I was not married. I was at the time I was single. So, you know, the kids were living, uh, with their, their mom. And so, you know, I, I got to see them, you know, it's per visitation rights. Okay. So now let's jump ahead a little bit to your first deployment. So you got the call that you were going to be mobilized. Yep. Got the call from my um, LPO say we're, we're the battalions get mobilized. And I think it was in July, we mobilized of 05 and I was going to be on the TM, uh, TNT, TMT team. That was tactical movement team. There were three teams. That was the convoy security. Uh, so uh, we were, each team had six uh, gun trucks, Humvees, and they're, uh, you know, with the four people per vehicle. So we, um, our training was a little bit, a lot more intense. You know, again, this is, you know, mid, I was thinking I was probably like 43, 44 at the time. So probably 44. So we went through a lot more uh, training than the actual, um, the battalion did. We actually went to uh, uh, 29 Palms, went out to Camp Wilson. So we went out to that hell hole. Uh, Chow was miserable and it was hot. So, you know, we went out there, but we had uh, higher standards. We had to uh, run farther. We had to do more, all kind of stuff. Uh, it was more intense for us versus everybody else. So you were what, a second class at this point in time? Second class. And were you being deployed with 22 or were you augmenting uh, active duty battalion or? No, at the time we were, as the whole battalion was being uh, mobilized. So this was 2005, you, you said that you got the, the word, right? Yes. So by this point in time, uh, much like me in 2006, we already saw what was going on. Uh, the Battle of Fallujah had already happened. The IEDs had become a real, real big issue. Did any of that play in the back of your head? Um, oh, yeah, it did, because with our train, they, they talked to us. We were actually, I was a driver for the uh, um, convoy uh, commander for the chief, uh, which was an idiot. Um, but um, I was the driver and we were taught, you know, we had with the gunny was showing us, you know, videos and showing us stuff and talking. And we were actually, uh, I was trained to, um, that if a kid ran out in front of me, I was to run over him. I was not to stop. How did that weigh on you? It, 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 it weighed pretty heavy on that, you know, but again, you know, I, you know, I had to put in perspective, you know, I have, you know, not, uh, I got 20, 24 of my crew members along with the other, um, people that are driving in the convoy. So I, you know, I, I had to do that. So yeah, it weighed on me, even coming back, even once I got back ended up, I didn't do end up doing that because once we got in country, uh, they stood one team down and my team was the one that stood down. And because of my construction experience, that's, they put me in construction. So, but I didn't actually go on, you know, those teams, but I did do some, um, a lot more driving myself in the, uh, second deployment. So as you, um, as you guys get ready to deploy, um, you're mobilized. So people don't know, uh, 2005, you get your orders saying, Hey, go get all this medical shit done. Uh, check out of the NOSC, then go in. I don't know for the CBs, but for the FMF corpsman, you're sent over to one of two, what they call Naval mobile, 
Naval Mobile Pro, Navy, yeah. NSPS. One more time. Yes, Naval Mobilization Processing Center. Yes. Um, where you sit in basically a level of hell that's called waiting for active duty pay to kick in. At least that's what happened for us. Um, did you guys do an NMPS at the processing yes. sites or did you do it with the CBs? Well, they actually, um, at the Port Wanimi, they actually have what we call the Shawshank. It was a long warehouse old building. And at one end of it, that's what they, they had. So you had your process, you know, you had to, you had a group where you had to go do your medical, uh, do pay, do this, do that for about, uh, three or four days until once you completed everything, once you completed everything, then you actually, you went to, uh, the battalion until you started doing your classes and your training. All right. That, that, that's true. Cause you guys were, um, you guys were indigenous. You guys didn't, um, were corpsmen with Marine Corps units that were attachments. Meaning that we, even though the Marines were already training, we couldn't go until all of our Navy crap cleared. So, right. yeah, we had to do it. I think one guy had like a five week hold because his pay wasn't kicking in. I think I was there for three. Um, lots of drinking, tons of drinking at like noon, which is not a good thing. I, my pay, my first, my first appointment, it, no, it was my second deployment. My first deployment, first deployment, I didn't have any problem with pay. My second deployment, yeah, I actually had to go to the um, Navy, Marine uh, support or whatever it is, a family support. I had to go and actually get a loan from them. Oh, wow. And and because I don't think I actually got my first pay until I actually got in country. And then I got it until I was able to pay that uh, loan off and then start actually getting paid. Yeah, because the... Um my issue for me was I basically re-enlisted and after going to field med, I was put on basically almost nine months of ADSW orders and then had less than a month off, like three weeks off and then rolled straight into mobilization. So it was clearing two different Navy pay systems, active duty back to reserve to active duty in it. But there were other people who were, told that they could AT out all the way up until the day before they left and that screwed up their pay. So I, long, we got a little bit into the weeds on the pay thing, but that's just typical of what happens with reservists. So yeah. um, going back to this, you go do your training in 29 Palms, hook back, I'm assuming at some point in time, you hook back up with the battalion. How was the... I don't know how long they gave you, but how long was your, or how was your pre-deployment leave when you came back to Texas? We didn't have any pre-deployment leave. We had, we had three, about um, three months, a little over two months of training. We're there. We actually did went that uh, did effects during that uh, training, uh, failed miserably. Um, but then, uh, no, we didn't, we had a, a family weekend. So if you had some uh, uh, family members, they could have flown out there and spent the you know weekend with you, and then after that, the following week is that's when you were you were leaving, or oh, really? you know, and and you know uh, and and debts air debt you know first whatever, but yeah, you only had a weekend, so I think you had like a four day weekend, so your family can you know fly in on Monday, uh, Friday, you spend the weekend with them, and then yeah, that was it. So did. You did your did you have a conversation with your dad before you deployed? 
or he was he 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 was uh, he died from cancer in '95, so he was already had been deceased. So I didn't. Yeah, he was. uh, Yeah, he was. He was 39 when I was born, so yeah, he was he was gone. He was a lot older, but yeah, he was already gone. With any of your were any of your relatives that were uh, that were uh, World War II vets or other vets? Did you have any conversations with them? No, I didn't. I didn't have um, any um, at, at the time. Also, my uncle had a uh, combat time. He his plane was went down. I think in somewhere in Africa in the jungle. But then I found out afterwards that he was kind of because he knew Czech the language Czech. He was actually behind the German lines in Germany. Almost oh, like wow. the, the precursor of the CIA or whatever. Yeah, he was working with them, and you know he was behind German lines, and so he got out of it. But no, I, he was already deceased too. So, and I didn't find out all that information afterwards. So no, I didn't have a lot of, I didn't um, have a lot, anybody to actually talk to about you know um, any of their experiences in, in the combat zone. And, and the kids at this point in time, how were they about? You know, they were concerned. You know, you know, worried, but you know. Uh, they seemed, you know, you know, what could be expected okay at the time. Yeah, definitely. So you guys, uh, at some point in time, you get onto a big, large metal object and fly over to, um, to Iraq. How was, uh, how was your transit over there? I always have to ask. Ours was unique. That was, that was we left from March Air Force Base. We, uh, landed in, uh, I think, um, Bangor, Maine, and then we went to Shannon, Ireland, and then we well, flew into place Kuwait. You're supposed to drink. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> I remember coming back. I mean, just like two beers. I was like, "Whoa!" You know, you were like, yeah. "You're wasted." But yeah, we flew into um, uh, to uh, Kuwait, um, Ali Al Salim Air Force Base. We flew into there, and then they had a. Um, a big army compound right next to the army compound. It was a small uh, compound for the CBs. We had our own compound. So yeah, we went there. We had, a um, because we had failed it uh, miserably on our effects. We had, uh, they actually flew instructors out to Kuwait and we had about two to three weeks of training uh, in Kuwait before we went to uh, Iraq. When you say you failed your effects miserably, um, obviously not bad enough where they thought that you guys would be a risk to yourself by keeping you deployed but yeah, what, what the, does that mean uh, well you know you got different levels different parts of the effects that they, they grade you on different things and um they had we had failed and so uh, because of that uh, to keep they agreed to keep us on our rotation to go in the country that they would send um instructors from or Amy fly them out there and uh, hold uh, different classes and different things. And I guess with that, then, uh, you know, we were, they were okay to go in country. So was your mission um, in general for the battalion, was it a actual CB mission or much like with a lot of the Marines, the artillery guys got turned into provisional MP or provisional rifle companies like they they were the recon guys i love my recon guys but in all actuality they were just higher speed infantry guys a lot of the times they weren't really doing recon work they were doing um direct action stuff no we were were actually 
we were actually doing the construction. We um, uh, flew out to uh, Al Qaim AQ. We went out to there, and they, they were um, we relieved. I can't remember the battalion, but we were relieved another battalion that was building a um, just finishing up one Iraqi army camp. It was Al Qaim was a um, uh, where we're at was an old uh, train station where they. Uh, um, Worked on uh, rail cars, engines, stuff like that. But they had one uh, built one compound from the Iraqi Army, and then we started. They started another one, and that's what we did. So we went there, started building uh, swa huts, swa huts, okay. uh, defect, uh, defect facilities, um, uh, burnouts. That's what we were doing, doing the prefab and building stuff. So while you were down in Kuwait, um, what was? What was it? What What was it like? Just waiting for those couple of weeks. Were you ready to cross over the the uh, demarcation line, or were you? I was ready to get the hell out of there because it was like they, you know, being in Wyoming is like seventy degrees, and you go into Kuwait. It's a summertime. It's like one hundred twenty five, one hundred thirty. You know, it's like what the hell? And they said Iraq is five degrees cooler. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> but they, they didn't care. You know, I just wanted to get over there. Yeah, I remember when we flew in. We flew in. I think we got there October 4th or 5th, somewhere around there. And I didn't realize that the Gulf got humid. So we got there and I think it was like 98 degrees at whatever time we got there. It was dark. So it had to have been closer to 2200, 10 o'clock. And it was like midday camp bullet uh, season miserable, just humid and uh, not a good, not a good fit. Back to you. You guys get there. You're doing your two weeks. They finally say, well, we marginally trust you better than we trusted you at uh, back stateside. So guess what? Get Grab your guns and let's get ready to go. Did you guys convoy up or did you fly up? From, uh, no, we, we flew on a C-130, flew in and then um, was there at Al-Assad for uh, a week or so at the, um, we had our own compound, but then they had the barracks. We stayed in the barracks and there, I was there, man, like a couple of days. And then they, we went to Agdag and flew, um, we flew into, flew into, uh, AQ on a 53, you know, at nighttime. And it's like, you know, all your shit, you know, you drag it off the back of that helo and just like, <laughs> it's dark as hell. And, you know, you walk so far and people are stumbling, found out that the, the, the LZ was a, a roadway. So, and it was elevated. So, you know, if you got off the road, you know, on the shoulder, you're starting to roll down a little embankment. So, yeah, that was a, that was an experience. So um, at what point in time was it, I don't know if it was in Kuwait or uh, Al-Assad or AQ. Did you go, shit, this is real. Uh, I guess basically when you're flying in Kuwait, you know, this, this shit's real, you know, it's, it's, you know, you know, it's, um, knowing that, you know, going into the combat zone, that's, you know, people getting killed and, you know, and, uh, you know, I believe, you know, you always hear that, that, um, that saying there's no atheist in a, in a foxhole. And it's like, yeah, you start getting, you know, you know, one with your maker and, you know, and, you know, getting a, a closer relationship with him. So yeah, did, you know it's very real. Did you notice uh 
Because as a second class, you kind of you're not really involved with the Chiefs, but you can kind of see on the periphery what they're doing. And you can also see what the non-rates in the third classes are doing. Did you kind of see a change in what's the word I'm looking for? Not attitude, but professionalism. Did like did could you tell a marked difference between um your drill your drill weekend buddies and now you're there and they have their game face on or was that not yeah. really a- yeah you you could see it's a little bit more professional you know it's you know but a lot of you know not a lot of that i mean my lpo was you know he was um he was very good at, at the nosk and then and then i worked with him when i got the aq i was working with him and he took care of me but he was you know it was about the same you know it didn't change much. So the the bigger question that uh, or what so how am I trying to say this? The stigma. Um, did you guys relieve an active duty battalion or did you relieve another reserve battalion? Another reserve battalion. So did you did you feel like there was a stigma though um, when you came across active duty guys, whether it was other CBs or other services that oh. You guys, the weekend warrior guys. Yeah, I did really the first one, the first deployment. The second one, I didn't, you know, you know, second one didn't see it as much because they, they caught, kind of saw because you saw, you know, by the time one went back for the second one, you saw, you know, National Guard, you saw, you know, ran across the Army National Guard, you saw, you know, the reservists, so the reserves. So, yeah, it was, it, it wasn't quite the stigma as it was the first time. So, but did the, did the first time, did it really kind of, did it play a factor in how you guys were, were received in general? It was, but the, I think it also just got kind of, okay, well now, because of this, we got to raise our bar, you know, and, you know, we got to prove ourselves to show that we're no different, or if not even better. Because I, th- I felt in some ways we're better because general, the age for the, um, the uh, CBs at that time was, I think, the uh, the uh, average age was like in the forties, and so for and, and I, for us for the reserve CBs, because I saw you know not only you know did we just bring our rates, but we also had um, other skills that we brought on the table too. Like myself, I mean, I did you know uh, one of the chiefs when we came back, he was calling me SW uh, SW two. I says. I'm a BU chief, you know, because I was doing some welding out there, you know, know, operate equipment, different other things. So, you know, we, it seemed like we, um, I felt like we had a, um, a higher uh, set of skills because we also brought other stuff, you know, because not everybody was working. Their civilian job was not in their rate. I mean, my, I didn't work in my rate at that time. So, you you know, so you brought a different type of skill set. Do you feel like leadership, um, in general was kind of that way too. Uh, not so dogmatic with just being solely focused on Navy and Navy policy that some of these guys who, um, who deployed with you again, working outside their rate, maybe had a different view on some tasks that the active duty would have gone A, B and C and taken longer to do where you guys had a different perspective. Oh yeah, I, I saw that. You know, just you know, they you know, a lot of times. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I do know that there's some weird conflicts that happen in the reserves. I can tell you my old CEO at 16 was let go by a third class because they worked at the same company. The third class was his like two tier up supervisor. You want to talk about an odd situation? Yeah, I don't think that third class picked up second. But that's the reserves. You you have these weird things. We I saw a Marine over at Third Anglico. He had like two PhDs and he was an illicit guy. So it brings a lot of skill that people, I don't think people understand. Yeah, they don't. They just thought so, we, you know, we're just weekend warriors and that's, you know, so that's all I, that's, that's the way they perceived us, you know. I want to say there was a stat that at one point in time, it was either 06, 07-ish or 05, 06-ish that 20 to 25% of the force that was in country were reservists or National Guard. So we all went out and played. That yeah, means we did. Um, you were describing that uh, you guys took over a project where you were adding to a camp or creating a new camp. So did you guys leave the wire a lot or was that camp kind of encased in the AQ camp itself? That was still kind of encased in the AQ. But then um, we got tasked with uh, building Cop South. Uh, so because I wasn't able to be on a TMT, I volunteered to go on that group. And so... Um, we went out to the Marines were being our security. So they had the gun trucks, the uh, army engineers, they took out the, the equipment, like the dozers and stuff like that. And then we, the CBs went out. So, yeah, that was my very first convoy. And, and I still got a picture of the um, MTBR, the, the, I mean, bed was only so high. <laughs> so this much of us was exposed and you look at the exhaust stack on the MTBR, it had a hole about like that from around. It's like, holy shit, what did I get myself into? So we went out to the middle, um, I don't know, about 12 yards, uh, 12 miles out and in the middle of some farmland, which I don't see where it's farmland. We went out and uh, established, started building a camp to where the Marines set up the perimeter, the Army engineers offloaded the equipment, started building berms, and then we started building structures. And so that was my first after a couple nights there, that was my first experience of actually hearing uh, explosions and, and uh, rounds going off. The uh, about three o'clock in the morning, you heard loud explosions. Once we realized it was uh, somebody looked across the berm, they were doing the uh, uh, some over the Syrian border. They were pushing the insurgents across the Syrian border, so it was twelve miles away. But man, it was you could feel the percussion, and it was noise as hell. So I, I know Cop South. I don't know why I know it. I've heard the 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 name before. I didn't know you guys were actually involved in. in yeah, it was twenty, twenty two. So I went out there the first for the first group, and then um, started. I came back. They had to bring me back for a short period of time to back to AQ in there, and then I went back out to Cop South again right before November, uh, before Thanksgiving, and so I was out there for about two months. So was that. Was the convoy that took you to Cop South for the first time, was that your first time on the ground leaving the wire? Yes. First time. So I'm I'm assuming you guys I'm assuming the CBs on top of everyone else went out armed. 
Yes, we know we were. Yeah, we had a full battle rattle. We were locked and loaded. Uh, we were ready to go. So one of the experiences I distinctly remember ingrained in my soul is pulling up to the loading and clearing ramps the first time and go into condition one. Do, do you remember, do you, do you have any feelings on that experience when you guys went hot? Yeah. That, the, the very first one that was, you know, just that, yeah, it was, it was kind of a little, you know, it really hits home right then. Okay. This shit is getting real now. And so, you know, even even before that, actually, when I saw that, you know, getting the MDVR, and I'm thinking, well, this much of me is exposed. You know, you always see, you know, rounds already hit this vehicle, so it's like, you know, shit. Yeah, it was, it was getting real. So you do that drive. I take it that the the drive out to Cop South was fairly uneventful. Yeah, it was uneventful. Um, nothing. Uh, all my convoys, you know uneventful nothing nothing happens except for one was kind of a couple of them were kind of a little interesting but nothing you know no shots or anything like that so you um help me visualize this so you guys drive out to a patch of dirt in the middle of like you said farm country how do you even start the process of building a combat outpost that you start, uh, we the start, uh, you know, perimeter. The the Marines, you know, had the four corners and they started building stuff. We actually would hold uh, watches. You know, we had a M60 out there. We didn't uh, have a 240. We had a 60, so they had a gun pit. You know, we had our watches, and so you know, it was. But, I mean, did you did you guys have to build that from scratch? Everything was from scratch. I mean, so they, we we took out lumber and we just started. Um, at, well, we had some. Um, all of our swat huts, we prefabbed them where they were like a kid. You had a floor, walls, roofs, and all that stuff. So all that was on a truck that went out there with us. So they offloaded that, and we started um, building uh, wooden structures. So how long would you say it would take you guys to go from flat ground to something that you feel at least comfortable saying it's it's something? Not necessarily finishing the outpost, but actually where you feel a little bit safer than just maybe Constantina wire and that's it. Yeah, well, we didn't have the Constantina wire. We just, you know, first was the berms. And uh, I think it was uh, about three, probably close to four days. They had, uh, it was a good size. I would think, uh, man, it's like 10 acre site. And oh, I wow. mean, okay. They, they they got after they you know they were pushing some dirt and so yeah once once they got the berm done then they, you kind of you just you had a little uh, you know comfort feeling in but still you know so were you guys sleeping under the stars then or were you guys convoying back and forth every night no no we just stayed out there we we set up a tent so um, we were inside the tent and then they had like a lean to on the outside and that's where the chiefs were and then. Our first swall hut that we built, and then we uh, moved into uh, the swall hut. But we had a little bit of structure, but I mean, we're used to sleeping on the stars, so it was no big deal. It was it was right. cold though; it started getting cold. But I, I was just thinking from the terms of, again, it took four days to build berms. <laughs> That's a lot of exposed time out there. Yeah, it is. So you said you heard your first, uh, let's call it fire and anger. 
at one side or the other out there. Did you guys start getting any um, any people probing or trying to play with you guys while you guys were out there building? No, we didn't. We didn't have anything. You know, they, um, we didn't. No, we didn't have anything of that. No so shots. You, no, nothing. that's crazy. I, I just, I'm envisioning a bunch of Marines, some, some soldiers, and you guys out there, basically with giant targets on. Because you have no real structure at this point in time. Oh, we did. And we saw uh, there was a, a farmhouse, I don't know, maybe about a mile away. And they saw some activity there. So we thought we were going to be all gung-ho, go out there with a you know, bulldozer, and, you know, Marine, a couple of MTVR, uh, MTVR and then uh, um, uh, what was that four-wheeled vehicle the Marines had? The Humvee? LAV. No. <laughs> uh, not four-wheel. I mean, six-wheeled. Six wheel. Oh yeah, the the the, L- uh, the LAVs. Yeah, the LAVs. It, it's uh, yeah, yeah LAV twenty five. Yeah, that's what they had them out there. They had four of them out there. So we're going out there, like driving across fields towards the house until they saw a mom and kids walk out. So we just you know t- uh, tucked our tail and turned around, and came back. We we're gonna go bust doors and stuff, but no, that was it. Okay, so then uh, you spend your time down there at Cop South. Um, and then you said you rolled up on right about November. So for you, uh, were you back at AQ when uh, Thanksgiving rolled around? No, actually, no, I was at a, um, I had gone out to um, Cop South again for the second time. We just um, went back out there and the, the main push was one out there. So went back out there and no, we actually, we had our Thanksgiving out Cop South. So the uh, camp, Commandant at AQ said, uh, "No, nobody on base was eating their Thanksgiving dinner until everybody out in the field had their uh, their Thanksgiving dinner. So, you know, those guys that delivered us Thanksgiving dinner risked their lives. You know, that was so. Yeah, you know, we had that's how we had Thanksgiving dinner. So, did, was that special to you out there? Yeah, it, the it was. Yeah, it is because you know it, it's something like that. Because like every two weeks they would have the the Marines convoy come out there and bring a um, uh, NWR uh, Connex uh, on a, a truck that had um, you know all the gee duck, you know snacks and all the stuff. We go and you know and buy stuff. So that was that was a special case. And every time they came out there, man, we go buy cokes, chips, you know snacks and stuff like that. That because you know you're eating MREs, you know three times. Okay, a, that's a, what I was going to ask you. Yeah, so three you times a day. Okay, so you guys were full on still super Spartan on that side. So no tray rats. We we had I think out there we had that Marine that Thanksgiving dinner. The one time they brought some food and they made hot dogs or burger and hot dog burn, you know, and very few hot meals. So mainly it was the MREs and they had some other type of um, we call them Haji MREs. They were a little bit different, and so we would kind of change that up every once in a while. This to change something up because MREs, you know, eating them for two months, we actually lost a lot of weight. Surprisingly. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. So did you guys, um, though you had the Marines out there and I'm assuming you still had some, uh, some soldiers out there. Did you guys ever get tasked with patrolling or were you just focusing on the construction and building out the camp? No, we just, uh, building the camp. Actually, once the Brams got, um, built and the, the army left and then still was uh, they kept the marines out there you know on all four corners at the, the perimeter no we didn't 
no, we actually had to go outside of the um, the berms a couple of times with, with the stand watch because they were doing the um, uh, the uh, areas for um, the waste whenever you know what's the almost like not necessarily a whole, uh, sewage place where the you know you throw all your waste out there. I'd like we had to go out, uh, We had our no, it was more like the sewage. So um, they ran a pipe out there to. Uh, run out the uh, you know the sewage. You know if there was any waste you know, from the, like the dining facility or st- that was later on once the Iraqi army took over. Oh, okay, okay. So you, I'm assuming you also do Christmas out there then. Yeah, at that time they sent me back to uh, AQ for R and R, but actually all I did was uh, stand watch. But yeah, it was. Yeah, um, I still got pictures of that chow hall and the food at the Christmas time. So yeah, it was pretty Christmas sucked because I found out that my girlfriend, um, started, uh, dating her ex-boyfriend right before Christmas. So Christmas sucked, you know, it really did. Well, being away from, you know, family and loved ones, it, it, yeah. it sucked. Well, I know you're super family oriented. So that's why I was asking about these holidays. How were you able to communicate with family back home at that point in time? <laughs> We had um, we had two DSN phones and a, and a contact, so we'd have to uh, call a number like at uh, Fort Sam or one of the bases at Fort Sam, and then you tell them, "Hey, I want to make a morale call to such and such," and you give them a number, and then they place that call. So <clears throat> that's all we had back then, and out in the field, and you know, you had to do that like at four o'clock in the morning. You had to wake up and you know. Go and do oh, that. That's right. Time. Yeah. The time difference. The time change. So, because we, you know, the time change, because we worked, you know, 12 hour days. So, by the time, you know, we got food, then, you know, you couldn't, it was the time change. You couldn't really call. So, you had to get up early in the morning to call. Oh, damn. So, you, so you guys got there, what, mid summer? No, we got there. Or late summer? Like September. Oh, okay. September timeframe. So were you guys on a six-month rotations, or were you guys on a year rotation? No, it was a six-month. We actually, the deployment was uh, nine months, but uh, our deployment was six months. So we did six months. We came back in, I think, uh, April of 06. So did you guys have any, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Did you guys have any uh, indirect fire incidences, or did you guys have any... I didn't. Uh, some of the other um, people I knew, they they had some back at uh, uh, um, Al-Assad. They had some indirect fires there, but I never did experience anything. So now, did when you guys finally got the word that uh, you were coming home, how was that? How was that sentiment? Like, hey, April's coming up, and oh, it was it was you know. Yeah, it was it was a good thought. I mean, I'm getting out of this hellhole, you know. I'm ready to go home. So at that point in time, were you were still a second, or did you picked up first at that point? I was still a second. Um, when I came back, I was only a second for two years, and they uh, they screwed up on my eval. I got a promotable. I mean, here I was a crew leader doing all this stuff, and you know I felt like I should have got an EP, but all I got is promoted. I got screwed. They uh, they made a mistake and ordered me an exam, 
and I took the exam and I passed it and uh, made first two years with the promotable. So nice. I kept my mouth. <laughs> so I, uh, I kept my mouth shut. And um, I actually got uh, frocked right before, uh, um, you know, I volunteered to go back with 28. So I got frocked like in December and then in January. That's when uh, we got shit back, uh, uh, sit, um, back out the wine in me. So let's talk about coming home. Yeah. Like I said, you guys got the orders. Um, you're, you guys obviously fly out of probably Al-Assad back to Kuwait. Kuwait back through basically a reverse uh, Kuwait, Shannon, Bangor, back to where did you guys fly back to? Uh, I think we actually flew into uh, Port Magoo. I know the second okay. time, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking the first time we actually came back to Port Magoo, and then they just bust us over because it's only like you know, not even ten miles away. So you you guys went back to Wainimi then? Yeah, we went back to Wainimi. We did our, our demo stuff, and then um, then they um, did demo, and then all of a sudden you okay, well you finished. You know you're flying out tomorrow at such and such hours, and so yeah, you you had a short time frame, you know that you were before you flew back. So you you get back to Texas, and one of the one of the hard things I think reservists have an, an issue with where active duty, whether you're with the Marines, CBs, hell, you're with the fleet hospital, you come back, you do your post-deployment leave, but guess what? You're seeing everybody again, right? You know, you're, you go back to work two weeks later and there's Bob. I deployed with Bob here. You guys are now scattered to the wind. Uh, I don't know how long well, you waited before you drilled, but. Once you guys get I, back, you're kind of going back to normal life. Yeah, I, I kind of went back to normal life. But once I got back, um, I got pissed off because my NOS was in, in, in Corpus. So that's where they flew me back. So then I had to get a ride back to San Antonio. But uh, my very first drill weekend, um, that's when I transferred. That's when I started the paperwork and process. But it was, you know, talking to people that were active duty, deployed, you know, once they deployed. They went back home. Their buddies were all over the world. Okay, as a reservist, when you come back, you know you see them back on the drill weekends. You see some of the people you you actually drill with, and so that was, you know, or you know, they actually live in the same city or whatever. You can still kind of you know meet up with them and you know, and you know share your experiences and stuff like that. So I see that as more of a plus for the reservists versus active duty, because well, even now. Even now, yeah. I still, you know, we have these swarms and, you know, see people, that, you know, that you deployed with. And it's not like, you know, actually the people that have maybe retired here, they're not seeing people they deployed with. You know, as far as reservists, you actually see people you deployed with. I guess I was talking about the the immediate after you get back, not the, not the longer term, where you come back and, like I said, you guys have dwell time for a little bit. And I know when you came back the second time, uh, they had implemented the, like, you don't have to drill for six months. I started right away. Yeah. And, and some people do. Whereas with the active duty side, like I said, you go out, you go out with all these guys, say a 
Marine, uh, Marine Corps battalion. They all come home. They all do their post deployment leave. And then they're back at work seeing the same guys again, a couple days, a yeah. few days later. Yeah. You do your AT. I mean, your, your weekends, your, you, you come back, you know, uh, me, I started, when I got back, I didn't do any do all time. I started drilling right away. And, you know, you see the people, you know, you're deployed with. So to quote you, you were happy to get out of that hellhole. <laughs> what, what changed or what drove you to want to volunteer with 28? Um, I didn't want to be that person that, you know, only went because he was, it was his battalion went and I didn't want to be, I wanted, you know, I didn't want to be a one time, you know, you know, deployment. Also I had two real close uh, brothers that were going back and I just felt like, you know, felt like I had to go back and, uh, you know, go back and protect him. I know one doc, he wouldn't, you know, I was trying to protect him because I know he wasn't a very good shot. You know, there's things like that. Just, you know, one, again, you know, wanted to serve and, and actually, you know, there was not the unknown. The first time when you went, there was unknown. You didn't know what to expect. The second time when you went, there was more, there was a comfort level. You didn't have that. And so you knew what to expect. And so you could easier embrace the suck versus the first time. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. So in terms of going with a completely new unit, well, let's talk about, let's back up for a second. You got home at some point in time, you heard about 28 deploying. What was it about a year? No, it was, it was like three or four months. We found out that 28 was going. And so we volunteered some, from the time I got back in April of 06, I deployed in January of 07. So it was about okay. nine months. I was actually okay. home nine months before. But I knew like uh, three or four months afterwards heard that they were actually um, taking volunteers because they didn't have enough to um, stand up a battalion. And one of the um, the chiefs um, at the time with that battalion was actually, he lives in San Antonio. He was drilling at the NOS. And so, uh, you know, he was talking to us. And so we... We got in contact and made the call and decided to volunteer. So what was the the time that you spent at home between deployments? Did you have enough time to decompress from your first deployment or were you just eager to get back out there again? I, I was I had time to decompress, but then you know, I was eager to, you know, ready to go back out. You know, I knew so guys- again it made it easier because you knew what to expect. Did you have any of the the issues that some people did after their deployments where you, you were lugging around a rifle and a pistol, or at least I had both, but you were lugging around a rifle everywhere. Did it feel awkward when you came home not having certain things that you would have on a daily basis out there? Yeah, that, that was the, well, that was a good thing about coming to Kuwait because once you got to Kuwait, they took it away from you right then. So you, you kind of, you know, you started you started it then before you actually got home. So it wasn't as much of, um, you know, an issue then, but the one thing that did bother me is once I went with my, uh, uh, roommate went to a gun show and it's like that freaked the hell out of me because there was no muzzle awareness. Uh, that's, that's one thing that freaked the hell out of me, but no, it was, they, the two weeks we were in Kuwait, you, they brought off the bat, you went and, uh, turn in your, uh, your weapon to the armory. 
and you did your couple of cleanings and then that was it. It wasn't like when you, when you went into the Kuwait, you had it with you everywhere. When you child's, you know, shower, everything, it was with you. So yeah, it was kind of weird the first, you know, few days, you know, oh shit, where's my weapon? You know, oh, oh I already turned it in. So, you know, because, you know, it went with you everywhere. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Did you have any issues with the, again, I don't know how much convoying you did. Did the, did the driving aspect when you got home affect you at all? Yeah, just, you know, being uh, vigilant, watching, um, you know, watching for debris on the side of the roads, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was a while. So did the, let's go to uh, 28. I guess the biggest question is, you're now deploying with a bunch of people that you really don't know very well. Um, you're a first class. You show up and how was integrating into a brand new unit? It was, you know, it was, it was really easy. And, but then again, there was like 40, between 40 and 50 people from 28, from 22 that volunteered. So you had, you know, you had a lot of um, people, you know, you knew. So that helps them. But no, they just, they accepted you. They brought you in. Um, uh, yeah, they, 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 they didn't treat you like anybody different. So they, they brought me in. I was actually, they put me in a special unit, a uh, special group. I was supposed to be going to Afghanistan, but because of my screw up on my security class, I couldn't go. So I went to another, to Bravo company from Delta to Bravo. And, and there was a uh, master or it was master chief that I, I knew that I'd done an AT with them for 55 days. And, and I had uh, spent a little time with them on my first appointment. So, you know, I knew some of them and so knew a couple of chiefs. So it, it made it easier, but they accepted you, you know, you weren't, you were one of them. So at that point in time, had you heard about Bob Westover? No, I didn't know about Bob Westover until, um, probably in 2009, we had the, um, our battalion had the first CV ball in San Antonio. So we had a, a group, here that put it on. I was part of that uh, committee and that's the, Bob was our uh, guest speaker. So that's when I met Bob. Oh, Cause I don't okay. remember him. I don't remember him when we're at, uh, at Medhold. I don't remember him. I thought he was still there. He may have been gone by the time you got there. Um, I, I was thinking he was reading his biography. I thought he was there, but I just didn't, he was yeah, still maybe I, some of his treatment. Yeah. He, he may have been um, on the way out the door at that point in time. Cause I thought you were there for his retirement that happened over by the uh, Marine thingy. No, anyway, I wasn't, anyway. I wasn't there. Anyways, I am working on trying to get him technologically smart enough to do this. He wants <laughs> to do it. It's just not technically savvy yet. So we go back to you guys. Have you guys, what's, how am I trying to say it? Have you guys had the, any influence from people who other reserve battalions at took casualties are you guys hearing any stories on from the reserve side of cbs you know i just some of the uh, the facebook posts you see some stuff but you know i didn't um we didn't lose anybody um on my uh 22 deployed in 09 and um i know um there was a uh doc riley he uh 
HMC rally now, but retired. But now he got um, he was wounded in '09. Uh, but as far as casualties, no, I don't know. You know anybody or haven't had haven't been that. associated with anybody other than you know doing the dedication at, at Janky Hall. You know meeting uh, her family. So that had, was it. had she been had she, at that point in time in '07? Had she been killed yet? Yes, yeah, so she was in. Uh, uh, Doc Pacheco, he was, uh, um, he actually did the turnover in 0506 when we're coming back. He actually did the turnover with Janky and they were coming in. So it was a time frame like March or April and, uh, several, I think it was several months after that or sometime in that deployment for her. That's when she was lost along with, uh, a couple other CBs on that convoy. Yeah, so she was a. I knew she was a second class. Yeah, she was second class, single mom. We're, uh, yeah, she. Um, so we're talking about uh, over here at Core School, where the corpsmen go to school. One of their barracks is called Janky Hall. It was a uh, Navy hospital corpsman, second class, Jamie Janky. Uh, she was killed on June the fifth, two thousand six. So right before you guys, or right when you guys got. No, right before yeah. you guys got there. No. Well, the, yeah, that was before the second tour. Yeah, she was uh, she was she was lost between my uh, first and second one. The dual time she, between um, the two. And she was a reservist, so that's why I we I brought her up. So, um, so you probably had heard something about that. I'm assuming because she was who was she with? She was with doesn't say twenty twenty five. She was up north. I think it was twenty five. Yeah, she got a she got a calm with a V too for it. I had uh, heard some of uh, I didn't hear much about it, but um, I really heard a lot of it was with um, Campos had come down to the A school and you know he met with some of the uh, the, the chiefs and uh, Lotto Garza had said something. He said something to Lotto and, and Lotto kind of started the ball rolling and got me involved. And that's when we started the you know project of putting the flagpole at the, right, at the right. barracks. So I guess where I, where I was going with all that was, was 07 was after I came back, um, the awakening in Al Ambar had slowly started where some of the Sunni tribes were working with us now as a try as opposed to trying to kill us, which is always a good thing. Yeah. Did you guys see a big impact from uh, that slow awakening that happened in mid early 2007 when you guys? Yeah, it was. There? I mean, yeah, the the one oh five oh six. I mean, that was one of those, the, the Ambar province. I, was, I mean, it was hot and heavy. It was it was bad. Saw it um, when we we're in 07. 07, I did a lot more convoys, you know, driving and stuff like that. And um, you saw a little bit of a change because uh, one time we had to go to, through Fallujah. They said, oh, no, we can't go through Fallujah in the daytime. we got to go at nighttime. So we go out, we drive through there and go to work at this camp, Cop Golden. But then the strange part is about, about a month later when we're coming back, we actually drove through in the late afternoon. As I'm thinking, what the hell happened in that amount of time frame to now we can drive in the daytime? So were you yeah, guys, but, um... we saw some difference. Were you guys rolling down MSR Mobile, the big highway? I don't remember. We were actually out to Kadem. We were actually doing the, the doing some prefab on some swads, 
And then okay, we drove so you- from there to uh, through Fallujah to Cop Golden, which was was close by to Fallujah. Yeah, if I remember right, Cop Golden was probably up north a little bit towards Ramadi. I don't remember, no, but no, I know that, that that was that was OP Viking. Never mind, that was. Uh, it was close place. enough to where they could send 155 uh, howitzer uh, illumination runs over to Fallujah because I was actually in a, in a burnout. We worked at nighttime. I was in a burn uh, burnout, and about 60 yards from me was a. 155 howitzer that I know was there until all of a sudden it went off and blurred and scared the shit out of me. Like, son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, when we were we were hard based out of Camp Belugia and our first little cans that we had, I kid you not, we were probably our back of our can of our three cans was probably from where you're sitting to the door behind you from a berm that had a 155 pit um, in it. And this was when we, they were, they were sending out a loom rounds or HE rounds daily. So three o'clock in the morning, guess what you hear? Yeah. Always fun. But so how was that experience with you for, like, I, like you said, you were right there. You didn't even know it was there. Did you ever have any of those pucker moments where you're like, shit, something bad's about to happen? Not then, but um, a couple of times I had to, um, when I was, um, when I first went to, uh, in 07, I, uh, they sent me out to KV, Korean Village. And so I was out there. I was at OIC out there. Relieved two senior chiefs. But I had, they had Stormy come through and the next day I was supposed to go schedule, go to, I can't remember the name of the town, going to there. Well, they said, Hey, well, one of our uh, outposts, they had a, a guard shack on top of the house. Well, it blew the, the roof off. They said, Hey, can you go there? So sure. So I went out there. So I'm on top of this roof and you see these, all these mosques around, you know, up, you know, above the roof, you know, perfect shot for a sniper. I think, fuck. You know, I'm up there, you know, totally exposed. That was one. That was a pucker. And then another time, we are supposed to go, uh, oh, I had to go to uh, this, the Syrian border and uh, to do a site survey there with the chief. And they said, hey, we're going to go out on a patrol. Well, the Marine lieutenant gives me a radio. He has one. And it's just this, us three. We're going outside the, outside the compound into the, the port of entry. So yeah, we're walking around there and that was kind of a pucker factor, you know? And then the last, what? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll come back. And then the other, the other one was, um, we're supposed to go somewhere and the Marines didn't have no uh, room in the vehicles. I said, said, well, I have a Humvee license. And so, okay, we got a Humvee. So I'm driving with them. We didn't, it wasn't a gun. We didn't have a gun on top. And we're actually doing a site survey and, uh, we're driving through the market and there's people all around you and it's like uh i can still that's that was a big pucker factor right there you know you know somebody throwing a toss on a grenade or something yep so what was the uh what was it like being on the syrian border um was there like an obvious line of demarcation that's syria this is iraq 
they just had they had like a checkpoint there. That's all they had, and so I mean, they're still walking through. It's, I saw a uh, white suburban with a um, OU sticker, Oklahoma University sticker on it, <laughs> and okay. then I saw another. I don't know if it's green or blue. It had a rich. I think it had a rich in Texas dealership sticker on it. So it's like, oh, they they wholesale them, send them over there. So. Oh, okay, okay. That's crazy, though. So, I mean, but th- was there? The there was no line, no fence, or there's no fence. There's no, you know, nothing. It was just like, it was a town where half of it was on like on the Syrian, and half of it was on the uh, Iraqi. That's crazy. Just like war, no war. Yeah, and they had a not far from there. They had a um, a Palestinian refugee camp. And so we actually, I got the, that was my only patrol. The Marines were going to go patrol it. So I actually, a few of us got to go with them and we went on that patrol through the um, refugee camp. And so we, so, so I was remember seeing, it was a, it was a, was it was a uh, UN camp. But was it on the Iraqi side or the uh... Iraqi side? They were um, Palestinians that got, uh, after, once the war started, they got, you know, trapped in, in Iraq, they couldn't get across. It was a refugee oh, okay. camp. They said, Angelina Jolene had gone out there numerous times to uh, visit that camp. Oh, okay, okay. I had no idea that, that was even out there. So you guys uh, have again a pretty uneventful, thankfully, a pretty uneventful deployment. And you guys come home in what mid two thousand eight ish November. October of 07. Okay. About seven. So you guys come home. Um, yay, you're back and you're on terminal leave. Yep. Which for people who don't know, uh, if you're active duty, you only get one terminal leave. If you're, um, a reservist, you could have several depending on how many times you deployed. This would be your second terminal leave. All that time that you earn, they give it to you. And the very last day of your terminal leave, um, something happened. I had thirty-eight. I had thirty-eight days of leave, and on day thirty-five, uh, which was November the seventh, two thousand and seven, my dad's birthday. About seven o'clock, I uh, I noticed that my uh, fingertips on my left hand started tingling, and then shortly after that, I had intense pain my, from my left elbow to my hand was hurting and center mass on my chest was hurting. So I went in and called my my ex-wife, my uh, youngest son's uh, mom. She was an LVN and said, hey, I'm, these are the symptoms that I'm having. And she says, she thought it might be acid reflux or indigestion. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, bullshit. You know, I don't, I'd never had that before. So what got me was the left arm hurting. So I uh, called Doc Pacheco and I said, hey, Doc, I'm, this is what's going on. He said, uh, Doc, on the outside at the time, he was a trauma nurse. And I said, uh, he said, where are you at? I said, I'm at home. He said, okay. You need to call 911. After that, you need to unlock the front porch door and turn on the light. So I did that. I called and I sat on the couch waiting for them. They came in. I took my vitals. My blood pressure was elevated. Uh, still having the, the chest pains. They gave me... Uh, Nitroglycerin pill, it didn't stop the pain. And the amulets, they gave me another one, it didn't stop the pain. Took me to the hospital. 
Doc said, go to Methless. Well, he was on med holdout in San Diego, so he called a friend that worked at the hospital. Hey, my buddy's coming in, such and such. So I went to the hospital. Uh, they ran a test, did the blood enzymes, then so I had a heart attack. So at midnight, they put me in a hospital. And an hour later in my sleep, I coded VFib. And so they, uh, I was woken up. Uh, the defibrillator woke me up, so I was jogging. So they, uh, they were, the nurse, her name was Renee, for about 110, 120 pounds, doing the chest compression. Hurts like a motherfucker. So once they got me stabilized, they took me in the cath lab. And through the process, I got that blockage, and I had three stents. And then eight, three months later, I had slight uh, chest pains again, went into uh, BAMSI, ran a stress test. I had the original stents, had blockage, so they put in, this time, three jug-eluting stents. So that was in February of 08. So at this point in time, that's about the time you and I met. Shortly after that, because it took a while, because after the, uh, they were, NASA was trying to get me back on, um, on med hold, and finally, after the second time, they finally they streamlined it and got me got me on order. So some sometime after that's when I met you. You know, so mid we, to probably mid oh eight. Okay, yeah. So we spent a, a year getting to know to know each other fairly well. <laughs> yeah, me babysitting you. <laughs> so we I'm back from my incident in part of the, the med hold thing is you muster, what was it, like twice a week, three times a week. And because the Navy is super weird, they assign, regardless of how much active duty you've had in that enlistment, if you're a selected reservist, a cell res, you are assigned to a reserve unit and the active duty guys get to phone muster most of the time. So Gary and I are sent over to the reserve center right across the street from BAMC. And because we're extra bodies, we're working. Um, cool, whatever. I'm over with 4th Recon at that point in time, helping them out, uh, doing Corman shit. But not really doing Corman shit because I'm not actually theirs. And you're doing, what, supply stuff back then? No, I was helping them some. I was doing a few things there, but then... That's at that time frame they were doing the BRAC, the base realignment and closure. So, um, uh, oh, uh, Tim found out that the uh, Army Corps of Engineers was bringing over um, uh, wounded warriors to keep them gainfully employed. So when we went over there and talked, and I found out, oh shit, that's just right up my alley, like the you know CB. So about nine months in uniform, I was going over there and helping them. And so once okay. I got discharged, uh, I got a job with them. So talk to me about how you got out of med hold. Because it was a, it was a process, wasn't it? It was, I actually had to, um, fly back to, uh, one Amy. And MPS, I had to go through, you know, I had to, I had to fly out there and go through the process, fly out there go through the demo process. And then once I got demoed, then they flew me back home. And then did you have to do the, um, the, not the, cause you were found fit for duty, which is yes. part of the, the whole process. Uh, and then you, what the, the suitability screening, did you have to do that when you came back to San Antonio? 
Not that I know of. Because there, there was a worldwide, uh, worldwide deployable slash suitability screening. So you get back and you start drilling again. You've been active duty for what, almost two years now? Actually, a little over, a little over two years, all close to three with the with the two diplomas of manhold. So, at any point in time, did you ever think about uh, transferring over to full time support or doing anything like that? No, I, I never thought about that. Just because you know, my jobs, I was making you know good money. I didn't want to do that. But I actually, I volunteered to go back in thirteen again with twenty eight. But, you know, going to the um, NOS medical, hey, is, you know, because of having the heart attack, hey, is everything okay? Everything, oh, yeah, you're good to go. And so, you know, um, get mobilized and go out to go through the NMPS uh, process, go through that process. Well, went through medical, I got a red flag because I, I didn't, they didn't, uh, I didn't have a code. And so, you know, I tried and try. there was a certain code, uh, whether, um, you know, I'm um, deplorable, uh, uh, oh, okay. Conus or Conus, okay, and yeah. so, uh, oh, Kevin Murray was Kevin Murray was actually running that out there at the time, and so I went to him and tried to, you know, stay a week and try to get it, and it, it didn't work out. So they actually sent me back. I didn't, I didn't clear medical, so they sent me back home. So at this point in time, in what was it, oh nine, when you got cleared? Oh nine, uh, yeah, I got off. Active duty September of You you had been in for seventeen years, so obviously at that point in time you knew you were going to hit your twenty. Yeah. Uh, first class. Did you ever think? What was your desire? I know from you and I being at the NOSC together, you had a desire to make chief. When did you have that passion that you knew you wanted to make chief? Considering that you went like six and a half, seven years as a third class and not really, you were content at that level. When did you realize putting on anchors was going to be a big thing for you? Probably, you know, as, as a second class, like my second year as a second class, because one of the reasons um, in the deployment, uh, my second deployment, 28, I, uh, my first deployment, I got my SKUs, man. My second deployment, I worked on my FMF pen because I've one of the main reasons I want to do that was because uh, I felt like that might help me, you know, my cheese package, you know, something like that. So I worked, that was, that was a struggle and I was able to get that, but that was kind of that time frame. I, I saw that I want to, you know, I want to make a difference. I didn't want to stay where I was at and I felt like I could make a difference. So as a, um, so people know uh, SKU's pin is a CB combat warfare pin, which uh, you have to be assigned to a CB unit in any any eligible personnel. So it's not just CBs. It's not builders and welders and anybody that's it's, it's, it's anybody that because there's uh, they have other rates that, you know, corpsmen, uh, storekeepers, all that, the gunner's mates, anybody that's attached to the CBs can go for that warfare pin. And then there's the FMF pin that uh, Gary mentioned, which is a fleet Marine forces pin, which is any, depending on who the, how am I trying to say this without sounding like a total asshole, depending on who the CMC is for the division that you're assigned to 
will determine. So any corpsman who assigned to a Marine Corps unit uh, is automatically eligible and actually it's expected that you get it within typically within 18 months. Attachments like CBs, some sergeant or some command master chiefs will say, hell no, You're, you guys are your own thing. Others, you guys were fortunate enough to be able to be, to get that. So it's a difficult, it's a difficult achievement to get for a CB because there's not a lot of times when CBs are eligible for it. So it makes you stand out a little bit more when it comes to our boards for chief and senior chief. Well, actually, so, I think at the time they waived it because generally the CBs were only attached to them for six months. I think you had to be with them a year or longer, but they waived yeah. that that requirement. Yeah, and I I know that um, I think second Mardiv, their CMC kind of changed it to where CBs weren't eligible, and then there was a lot of pushback, and then they became eligible again. So it, it it's for non fleet marine forced attached units like uh npac which is the navy personal the personnel command that's embedded into the MEF for the division uh they those yns and ps's so yeoman and uh, personnel specialists will always have that opportunity but for people being attached to it it gets a little weird i i heard that there was uh either the deployment before me or the deployment after me they actually led the national guard unit uh who was who fell directly in um, the MEF's purview? Let their guys, if they wanted to, try it. So, who knows? Anyways, um, you and I, again, are well. You're on med hold. We, you get your first eval for to become eligible for chief. Yeah, I remember and that eval. <laughs> you, you stole my EP. Uh, not that it, not that it mattered because I had just put on first class, so it wouldn't have done anything for me. But um, you ran into. I remember it got hard for you because there became a point in time with the reserve side where they weren't making CB builder chiefs, or the the, no, or no. the quotas were so so low. They were. They were very low. So did that ever demoralize you, or did you know if you stuck it out long enough? You'd I, I had I had the mentality is you know what I might not make you know the latter years every year that I was eligible I um, to take the exam I was board eligible and so um, I there was I had a break in my evals I thought I had the proper paperwork in. But on my last board, uh, Betsy Griffiths, you know, she reviewed it and says, oh, no, that wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't have helped that. So I think that was probably my fault because I didn't have, I, I could have picked it up sooner. But I already had the mentality. You know what? You know, I'm, I'm going to do what I can do. You know, hopefully I can pick up chief. If not, I'm, I'm happy. I'm just going to, you know, do what I can to help somebody else pick up chief. And I had 21 years and. Uh, about six months, five or six months. As that last year, I was already had the mindset to retire, and so when I got the call from my CMC, you got to be shitting me. So, um, were you at twenty one years when you? Oh, that's I, right. Because reserves had different higher tenure than twenty uh, two. Reserves has the E six has twenty two. Okay, that's what it was. 
And so I had 21 years and six months. So I had the pleasure, and I just have to throw this in your face. I had the pleasure of helping you through your season because I had picked up Chief in 2011, much to your, or FY 2011, so late 2010, uh, much to your chagrin. But I will tell you this much, you were always very, very professional and respectful to your chief friend who you stole the EP from. I'm going to hold that against <laughs> you forever. No, I I'm, didn't steal it. I was somebody, <laughs> he gave it, Pete gave it to me. <laughs> that was his decision. One month. I didn't, I didn't, I, I, you didn't hear the whole background behind that. <laughs> I know, no, I know uh, he was, he was weighing on that one. So command commander Solcom came to me and said, Hey, um, you and Gary are both doing great work. You just picked up first class. Are you okay with me giving Gary the EP? And I was like, sure. I'm probably getting med boarded here in the next few months. So why not? <laughs> yeah. So I gave you my EP just so you mm -hmm. know. Yeah. <laughs> no, but anyway, so it didn't, I was, it, didn't, it didn't help. It didn't help anyway. Yeah. It didn't help either one of us. <laughs> but so, anyways, um, you, I had the pleasure of, being there with you for your season and without going into a lot of details. So what was, what was the initial call? Like when you got the call from your CMC? Oh, I still remember that day I was at work. I had left my job site and was back at the office. Just drove up my truck, just got on my truck and then the my phone rang. I looked at it and there's a CMC had shown. I was like, Oh, I knew earlier that uh one of my cbs um i worked at a camp um i can't think of it it's right by camp Bullis. anyway um, oh, um. Uh, it's an army depot i can't think of the name anyway he was a, he's a police he's a policeman out there and he said uh, when i was driving through the gate hey the results came out today or the board results well, okay so i knew that so when i got the call i knew what the call was about and I was just like, oh, shit, you got to be shitting me. So I knew, you know, even before he said anything, before I even answered the phone, I knew what it was. How late in the day was it? It was mid-morning, like oh, okay, so it was 9 or, it was nine or 10 o'clock in the morning, I think. Oh, okay. So did you no-no or did you in the back of your head where you're like, Oh, this is a call I get every year. Sorry, Gary, you didn't make it. Or did you know, no, no, they never, they never called. If you didn't make it, they only called if you, I knew they called if you made it. So when he called, I just knew in the back of my head that, uh, you know, I was, I was selected. And sure oh. enough, when, when he, uh, he, he said, B U C select. I said, I knew for sure. So then you got the second call. Uh, be at the NOSC and no, I didn't. I don't think I got one from the, I don't recall getting one. From, well, I might later on from the, the mess, but then later on that day, yeah. I got a call from my, uh, from my, uh, my skipper from the, uh, battalion. Oh no, I just meant then you, then you had to come see us. Yes. I had, uh, Oh, it was, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Mandy, she called. So, Hey, well now we got to start. This is the process. We got to, you know, start doing. 
So were you surprised at the, uh, at that first meet and greet? Cause yeah, you, it was you had all... known a lot of the, you, you had known a lot of the chiefs that, um, and you, you were quite frankly, uh, like the go-to guy at the NOS, not just for the CBs, but anyone there, like you knew 90% of the chiefs fairly well. Yeah, I did. It was, it was, it was totally a different, you know, once you're in that process, just going through all that, it's 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 totally different. It's an eye opener. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll be the first to say it. I thought I knew what I needed to know before going through what we went through and coming out the other end. And the first maybe week, I was like, this is bullshit. I, I already know this. I was the acting battalion commander or battalion chief at fourth recon for the active duty side i had been briefing generals since hm3 at uh lar what's the big deal and then come come out the other side it was like oh that's what it is did you have that awakening moment as you were going through this process yeah i had the, that awakening because you know um Again, working out there in uh, Korean Village, you know, I was the OIC out there. I really two senior chiefs, so I was, you know, basically working that capacity. So, and uh, one of the, uh, there was only two E6s and below with that battalion that got comms, and I was one of them. So, you know, I, I felt like I was already working on that. Some, but some of my my downfall was going to, you know, getting up to that process was the admin side of it, you know, but. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, even going through the process, like, whoa, it was different. And it, it, it really does change. I think it really does change your outlook a lot. But so now I got to ask you, you're a 20, what, 21 and a half years in. You're now a chief petty officer, which buys you some more time before you're, you, two you're more years, forced to retire. You know, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know at this point in time, you are a terminal chief. Yes. Uh, short of a miracle, you will not pick up senior chief before you're before you're told you have to go home. Did that weigh on you at all? No, it didn't. Um, I could have at the time the the CBs were uh, um, they were short, so they were. Uh, you could, I could have got a waiver to to do two more years. And I know a friend, another brother, he was, uh, he had done 22 years and he got a waiver. And then during that waiver time, he was selected for uh, senior chief. But I was, like I said, I, you know, earlier I had already, I was in that mindset to retire. And so those two years going through the season and then, you know, the other two and a half years I had to do, it was, it was tough because I was already in that mindset to retire. And and I thought about Duke getting that waiver, but then I said, you know, fuck it. You know, my, I miss, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter's, holidays, uh, Father's Day's, birthdays. You know what? I put my family through enough enough of it, so I'm ready to retire. I'm, I'm, I'm done. You know, I know I'm going to miss the people. I enjoy what I do, but, you know, um, I got to spend time with the family. So that, that was my process. So I could have done two more years, but I chose not to. So you, um, at what point in time do you think you got into, you transitioned from, I'm going to do this till I can run the clock out to, 
the reality of it is if I don't pick up chief this cycle, I'm done. Like wh at what point in time did the retirement thing kind of just become a reality? Well, it's like the last year, once I had 21 years that, you know, that the rea reality that I was going to retire. So, you know, I was in that mindset. I was, but again, I was going to go, um, you know, I wouldn't, I was going to continue what I was doing for that first 24, 21 years. Uh, all that had done that I was continuing for the last year and, and it wasn't going to change. I wasn't going to, you know, you know, I was going to go to the finish line. I wasn't going to slow down. I was at the last, you know, that last year I was going to, you know, if anything sprint, I know that's my last sprint, but I was going to get across the line. So would you have, was there any opportunity for you to deploy in that, that last two years? I probably could have, but knowing I couldn't go O'Connor's, the only way I could get a, uh, go O'Connor's would be a, um, you know, a special waiver. But by that time, I was married, and I didn't do that. Want to do that tomorrow? So you know, uh, I wasn't going to do it. I don't. I'd done it at the beginning of our relationship when I thought I was deploying, and I didn't want to do it to her again. You know, so or my kids or my family. I, I was just, you know, I'm I'm that's, done. That's right. You became a a father all over again when you got remarried. Yes. You you became the stepdad to what twins. <laughs> Well, stepped out the well. She had she had five kids, and the, the but she had the the two youngest were twins. You know, still at home, and then she had custody of her granddaughter. So basically, I was the father of the granddaughter too, the father figure. That's right. I forgot about that. So you you had um, almost started over with a with a new set of kids and family because you're you're at that time what you're the twins were. I they were medium at, at pinning. They were super young. 17 and they graduated. They had like um, 14 or 15, something like that. Yeah. And then the, 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 your granddaughter was a baby, baby. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, let's see, she's nine and then 73, she was like six. At the time. I, say, I thought, I thought she was younger. I could be completely wrong. Oh, wait, wait, 15. Anyway. Wait. That's the way. No, I'm thinking 15. 15 is when I get pinned. This this five. Yeah, she was like four. That's right. She was on four. So okay. yeah, the twins yeah. were twins were yeah, they were like oh 13 or 14. Yeah. Damn. So So yeah, having all that, I didn't want to deploy and it's, and I was getting too I mean, I mean going through the season, I was fifty four years old. You know, going through the years. You're still a spring chicken. <laughs> so I was 56 when I was getting ready to retire. So now my body hurts now. So looking back after retiring, um, you had a good mellow retirement ceremony at the golf course, um, which is turning out to be kind of a common place for retirements now. You get out, you're not drilling anymore. Did you notice a difference by having your weekend, that one weekend a month free? Yeah, I knew that, you know, when uh, we were, hey, well, something was coming up on the weekend, I didn't have to look at my calendar to see if, you know, is that my drill weekend or not. So it was nice not having to, you know, to think about that. So now knowing that all my weekends are available, don't have to worry about my two weeks, you know, not having to take a, you know, uh, staff calls and you know the battalion staff calls or emails so yeah 
It was nice. Did you look at your Did you look at your uniforms and miss it though? Oh, I still miss it. Yeah, I still miss it. I actually, um, uh, a friend of mine, ex, ex coworker, her um, grandfather was a corpsman on Iwo Jima, Purple Heart, and uh, he oh, passed wow. away um, about a month or so ago. So they had to, she reached out to me, they had the ceremony at Fort Sam. So I did the deal, I shaved and put on my uniform and, uh, uh, and attended the uh, ceremony. So it's nice to wear it everyone. I wear it for that. But yeah, I do. Missing you know, for me working at Fort Sam, you still see the Navy personnel, and you know, you know, I miss it. Or even you know, chief seasons, I was was miss wearing the uniform. Yeah, I mean, I, that's one of the good things for us chiefs and above is we have the season. If we choose to participate, we can still go do that. And you and I both are highly involved with that. There's typically four of us: Kevin, Chris, who's been on the show, you, myself. Sometimes I think we participate more than some of the currently serving reserve chiefs do. That's just me. Yeah. People are going to get pissed off at that. Um, but so now let's jump way ahead. Actually, let me ask you the question I was going to ask you way up back in the beginning. Looking back on your time in service, the way that CBs, and I don't know if it's changed since 2010-ish, but the way that CBs are trained as reservists, does it do them a disservice by sitting in a classroom? I think it does. I think, you know, it needs a little, few more opportunities. That's one of the things that even when I was the LPO at San Antonio, trying to get, you know, doing some, you know, we, we do some more, you know, on the job training, uh, trying to find little projects around here and there, doing some projects at, at, at Camp Bullis for the Air Force <laughs> and like doing those, um, you know, flagpole and anchor, anchor pad project, doing stuff like that. I think it, uh, it helps them some, but yeah, there's, there's just a lot of, a lot of classroom. And it's, to me, it's a lot of classroom bullshit. You got to do this, you know, these uh, classes every year. It's the same stuff, you know, every year PII. I mean, some of the stuff I can see it, but I mean, you had, I don't know how many classes we had to do. And it's like, Man, you need. We needed more time out in the field, just doing something, a little something. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, there's a lot of people who aren't working in their rate, um, in their civilian jobs. And so yeah, I I don't know about uh, as much with uh, your with the construction side, but some of those skills, like corpsman skills, can become perishable. So if you're if you're a corpsman and you're a reservist and you're working at HEB packing groceries and you're sitting in a classroom on your drill weekend you're really wasting skill set that should that could be used for you know training but let's jump to uh more recently so last year and this year is just a continuation of 2020 how did the uh whole covid world affect you uh I guess one of the biggest things that for me is affecting me is not being able to go to church, but yeah, it just, it changes some stuff, you know, like uh, my mom turned 83 last month and, you know, because of her age, not going and, you know, having a family gathering or even, you know, Christmases, you know, not that's to me is the, the family gatherings is the biggest thing, 
you know, I still go to work and you, know, you have to more, you know, got to watch, you know, somebody that's, you know, positive, test positive or something like that. But that's for me, the biggest impact me is being able to spend time with family and being able to go to church. You, you've been uh, working at Fort Sam for a while. Have you seen a difference in just people on base in general? Obviously every sailor, soldier, airman and Marine are masked up, but as a base seem to change at all? Well, um, yeah, the, um, there's not as much traffic because now a lot of them are uh, working from the house. So you, uh, in the parking lot, you know, we're from our buildings, you know, used to be a lot of vehicles. Now it's probably about a, a third of the vehicles because a lot of people are, you know, working from the home now. So you don't see it. Crazy thought to think that we can send the military home to. to well, it's more, it. it's not necessarily yeah. maybe the military It's more the civilian staff, you know, the, you know, the oh, other, okay. the support staff for the military, not necessarily the military people themselves, but you know, cause there's a lot of like the bill on the, I was doing it's PSDs, air force in there in the army. And so, you know, there's uh MCOM that's right behind us and some other buildings. And so a lot of those are civilians, you know, and they're working from the house now. Yeah. So, uh, do you have a good hope for uh, 2021? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. And it's like, I'm not going to get stressed out about it. So, I'm just going to kind of live it day to day and not worry about it. You know, I'm looking forward to we're kind of being back to, you know, a normal, whatever that is. But, you know, get away from this to where, you know, everybody's not paranoid. You don't have to, you know, like I don't have to go to work and fill out a questionnaire, you know, if somebody's sick or worry about somebody's sick. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, I know you were telling me because you're a hunter like I am um, that you were looking forward to taking a trip overseas. Is that still? on? Oh, day? yeah. No, that's that's we were supposed to actually go on um, next month, March. But no, that's. That's supposed to be for my 60th birthday party, but no, that's probably, that's going to be rescheduled probably, hopefully next year time frame. So, yeah, because well, that, with all that, the COVID, the restrictions, so no. Well, get over there before, it seems like New Zealand's getting a little weird with their, uh, with their hunting restrict or their hunting practices. I just saw that they're starting to kill off all the uh, Himalayan tar in a certain region. Yeah, not in a hunting way, but in a fly helicopters and shoot out the door type way, like we do with hogs here. <sighs> People need to learn. Anyways, um, thank you for coming on, man. It means a lot to me. Okay. Anything that I can do to babysit you a little bit longer. Hey, I appreciate it. No, man. Um, thank you again for coming on. I, I appreciate it. I learned a lot today, which I didn't realize. Tell Marlo and the kids I said hello, and hopefully we can get a hunt together at some point in time. Yeah, hopefully. All right, man. I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01, and you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. 
This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.